This is an ABC podcast. I look forward to leading a government that makes Australians proud. This election didn't just change a government, it was a green slide. Safe Liberal seats, two term incumbents, independence. We need to go back to our values, our principles, look closely at what has happened. Our policies will be squarely aimed at the forgotten Australians in the suburbs across regional Australia. Hello, hello. Welcome back to The Party Room. I'm Patricia Carvellis, the host of RM Breakfast, joining you from Wiradjuri country in Melbourne for our first podcast for 2023. And I'm so excited to be back with you to discuss the big political issues. Fran, I have been wanting to pick your political brain all summer. I know, right? So much to talk about. It almost didn't stop, which is kind of unusual. And certainly in the last couple of weeks, the political tempo has really picked up. So much sort of policy being talked about, for heaven's sake, that's a change, and politics. I've been champing at the bit to get to your PK. I'm joining you this morning from the country of Ghana people. I'm in Adelaide, and it is fantastic to be back. One of the defining issues of this year for Australia, I think PK, and for the Albanese government, is the planned referendum on the voice to parliament. And as we hurtle towards that later in the year, who better to have join us for our first party room back in 2023 than Stan Grant? So, It's already generating fierce political debate, and and we'll talk about that with Stan. But, of course, the economy is the other big story. It's always the other big story. And uh, cost of living pressures will command the Albanese government's attention big time. The Treasurer, Jim Chalmers, spent a good chunk chunk of his summer writing a a 6,000-word essay for the monthly, laying out his thesis on capitalism after the crisis. That's what he's called it. And it's uh, an essay outlining the principles and values that he believes should shape the Australian economy, not just our society, but our economy. Uh, He he calls this values-based capitalism. And at the heart of it is the notion that the public sector and the private sector should collaborate with community, with society, on national economic and social goals. As Jim Chalmers himself puts it, Well, my essay is all about how we strengthen our economy and strengthen our institutions in a way that strengthens our society and strengthens our democracy. And it differs from the approach taken over the last decade or so, uh, because I think for the best part of a decade, we've been pretending as a country that we have to choose between our economic objectives and our social objectives. And in the process, we haven't done a great job of satisfying either set of objectives. And so what this tries to do is to say that we would be much better off if we had the public sector and the private sector working together in the service of our national economic goals. That's the Treasurer, Jim Chalmers, speaking on 7.30 PK, talking about strengthening a society and strengthening our democracy, which sounds, you know, fantastic, and yet there are critics. Oh, yeah, a lot of critics. Look, hats off to the Treasurer for actually having a, a serious think about Australia's future and starting a debate. I heard someone the other day just count how many opinion pieces in response to the essay had been written, and it was in the tens. It's a lot. Like, a lot. So he's been successful in starting a conversation about the kind of economic strategy we should be taking on social issues in Australia. So good on him there. Many have seen the essay also as a future leadership pitch. Now, Anyone knows that you don't become a treasurer or a front bencher without having big ambitions. So, but I don't think that's entirely what he was doing myself. I think he actually is trying to 
carve out a sort of big, big ideas piece about the way he thinks that we need to uh, structure the next period of time, you know, really into the future, what kind of Australia we want to have and the economic settings for that. Some in on his side have also interpreted it as a sort of, uh, you know, a blank check, actually. Some, some front benches like, oh, great, so what can we spend money on? It's not quite what he was saying either. I think he's trying to talk about uh, the future and that, you know, some some of these social spendings are also an investment and this co-investment idea is not a new one, but the idea that the government wants to be more involved in actually making things, building things, actually investing in big ideas is kind of the gist, right? Well, I also think it's what people want. People want governments investing in big ideas. It's plain for most people, I think, to see that uh, governments over the last decade and more have really not done much, not been doing much except sort of manage things. And the whole notion of just letting markets rip certainly isn't working for everyone. It's plain to see, you know, businesses have been in profit, wages have been going backwards over the past decade, businesses in profit, but some of the businesses actually causing harm to our environment or to people themselves. So this notion of sort of capital, investors and business and government working together to improve and strengthen the economy economy and our lives is not a, it's not a new one investors are demanding more responsible behaviour outcomes from businesses. Businesses know that. So they're actually out in front of the government, many of them on this, I think. So I'm just not quite sure why this idea of government and business working together has created so much antagonism, really. Some of them read into it that it was lots of government spending. Yeah. But, you know, we've got social outcomes that we need to attain. We know that in aged care, in mental health, in Medicare, in housing. It's it's obvious in everyone's day-to-day lives that we haven't been able to afford to fix it via taxpayers' dollars alone. I don't mm. think that's a contentious argument. And if we look at, for instance, the success of the Clean Energy Finance Corporation, which was set up uh, under the Gillard government more than a decade ago, you know, small government investment loans to encourage clean energy businesses has produced dividend. It's produced a lot of investment in that clean energy sector at good returns. So, you know, we don't have enough affordable housing in this country. This government has a body to subsidise returns of super funds and others to encourage them to build more of that kind of housing. I think that kind of idea makes sense to people and it makes sense economically and it makes sense socially. I don't think it's the same as that old-fashioned notion of this is government picking winners, this is government meddling in markets. I, I just don't really think it is. Now, the Treasurer also forecast another tough year ahead as high inflation and high interest rates take their toll during a period of economic uncertainty. Now, just this week, we saw a dramatic plunge in retail sales data for the December quarter. And Fran, we know that this is actually going to be the year where those fixed mortgage repayments end. You know, that people have been able to fix their mortgages, that that expires for a whole lot of people. And people are really, really worried about what will happen at that point. This is not going to be an easy year. This is actually going to be an incredibly difficult year for the Albanese government to manage, right? Well, it's going to be an incredibly difficult year because we're talking about taxpayers' dollars not being able to do everything. And and, and look at the help people are going to need. Look at the past 24 hours, PK. We've got the productivity report showing that people aren't getting the medical help they need 
because they can't afford it. We've had electricity companies again this week telling us power bills are going to shoot up, I think, upwards of 25%. Uh, we've got, you know, the core logic data that shows how house prices have gone up. I'm, I'm in Adelaide at the moment. House prices in Adelaide went up 44% last year. And as you pointed out, interest rates are going up and something like 20% of mortgage holders are going off their fixed interest rates this year. So that's going to be an awful lot of pain for Australians that this government will be called on to try and mitigate in some way. And they've got to try and work out how to do that without adding to inflation. So this is a very, very tricky landscape. Um, you know, Peter Dutton is sitting by, I'm sure, just watching and, and waiting to pounce. And there's not a lot of levers the government can pull to address it. So that's where the scrutiny is going to be, I think. Now, uh, we're recording this on a Thursday morning. On Friday, well, the National Cabinet will meet, so the Prime Minister with all the Premiers and the Chief Ministers. And we know on the agenda is going to be what is increasingly becoming a crisis in Medicare, a crisis in mental health as well. A couple of different elements here. The, on the mental health crisis, there's been a roundtable the health minister has held to try and deal with some of the issues emerging there, and particularly in trying to, you know, strengthening the voices of people with lived experiences of mental health to try and make some changes. And then on the Medicare reform front, well, this is huge. I mean, Medicare is in dire trouble, and it really is, and it's a well-loved scheme, and it's a labour scheme, labour-constructed scheme, but it's very bipartisan in terms of people's broad support for it in the parliament. It's facing its largest overhaul in 40 years. This as uh, bulk billing rates, that's of course where you can see a doctor and, and the government essentially covers the cost of that, are very low. So people are paying out of pocket expenses, which are pretty high or not being able to find a bulk billing doctor. This strengthening Medicare report has been commissioned by the government. It's set to be shared with the premiers is my understanding. But there's a big push from the Premier, Dominic Perrottet, and also the Victorian Premier, Dan Andrews. They've come together. They were a bit of a united front often, actually. They work together, um, even though they're from different political sides. They've come together and said, we really need some significant funding and reforms. Fran, how serious is this one? I mean, how big is this going to be in terms of the federal budget we're seeing in May? This has to be the centrepiece, doesn't it, of the Albanese government? Well, I think it's a centrepiece in terms of that social reform, governments helping respond to people that we were talking about in a cost of living sense that might not necessarily put a whole lot of dollars in people's pocket, but will actually reform a system. The minister has said this system needs reform. It's not just about putting extra money into the rebate so that GPs get a pay rise, which they haven't had for five years and they need. And that's why one of the reasons, not the only reason, but one of the reasons why we have so few bulk billing doctors, they're rare as hen's teeth. I don't know about you, but I haven't seen one for a long time. And yeah. that Medicare co-payment now is getting very, very high for a lot of people. And that's a cost of living pressure. So the government needs to figure out what to do. It's got to put probably more money into the health agreement with the states because the lack of bulk billing is forcing more people into hospital emergency departments. So the states are dealing with that. But there's got to be this reform of Medicare. And there's lots of things being talked about. We haven't seen that report yet, that strengthening Medicare report, but it looks as though we might start to see some moves towards you know, Medicare also funding access to patients seeing nurses and physiotherapists and counsellors. So we get that, I think the Minister talks about wraparound care, which is really what modern medical and general practice care uh, 
demands these days. Look, there is so much on their list of things to do, so to speak. Next week is the first sitting week of the official year and there is quite a lot on the agenda. But of course, as we mentioned at the beginning of the podcast, the big one is this voice to parliament. The Prime Minister has really staked his Prime Ministership on this issue. He's really lent into it, signed up to the Uluru Statement from the Heart and is investing, I think, a lot politically in this. Should we bring our guest in to talk about it, Fran? Let's do it. Stan Grant is the host of Q&A, a proud Wiradjuri man, and our guest in the party room. Stan, it's so wonderful to have you in our first episode of the year. Yes, it's an honour to be on your first episode of the year. Thank you for having me. Stan, you're about to catch a flight, so, you know, thanks for squeezing us in no, before you're right. Look, Stan, we don't yet know the date of the referendum on the voice to mm. parliament, but we do know it will be later this year. Debate is up and running already, furiously, really. The No campaign officially launching this week, fronted by current and former Conservative politicians, a former Labor National Party president, Warren Mundine. Mm-hmm. Does this all spell trouble, do you think, for the success of the referendum, that there's the No campaign coming out so strongly so quickly? I I wouldn't say that it spells trouble, but I think if anyone thought that this was not going to be contested, I don't know what universe they were living in. You know, we've had 44 referenda and only eight have been successful and we've cast our minds back to the Republic referendum. We saw how divided that was, both within the Republican movement and also from monarchists. And once the rubber hits the road, these things become very tense, very Mm. heated, very contested. So it was always going to be like this. I think one of the really interesting things, and we saw this played out on Q&A over the past week as well, is that the, the yes campaign, if I could put it that way, are going to have to fight on multiple fronts. You have those who are opposed to the voice, particularly on the political right, but then you also have within Aboriginal communities and those on the left as well, criticism or opposition to the voice because they think it doesn't go far enough. So they're going to have to fight on multiple fronts. And that's going to be that's going to be interesting to watch as the year unfolds. Now, Stan, Warren Mundine, I spoke to him on RM Breakfast about what he was trying to do here. And he talked about this alternative idea they have. They want to put symbolism in the Constitution instead, but it wouldn't just acknowledge Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders in the preamble to the Constitution. It would also acknowledge the contribution to Australia from migrants from the multicultural community. Migrant groups have said, we don't want this. They've described it as pitting ethnic communities against our First Nations people. Really strong statement, actually, from their peak group, FECA. And they support the Yes campaign. But what did you make of that move? Why are they doing this? Well, it, it ducks the issue, doesn't it? I mean, what we are talking about here is a fundamental question of how do First Nations people speak into the Australian polity from a position of historical and political powerlessness left out of the framing of the original constitution, not counted in the census among the Australian population with the capacity for parliament to make discriminatory laws against First Nations people. The campaign of First Nations people throughout Australian history is to how do we express ourselves as sovereign peoples in a colonised land and speak with a voice to power. So to talk about things like symbolism, which was outright rejected uh, in all of the consultations uh, amongst First Nations people about what constitutional recognition would look like, symbolism was never going to be enough. Nice words are not justice. Um, 
that that the, the idea that you could just insert symbolism isn't going to cut it. The idea that migrants should be recognised in the constitution symbolically also appears to be sort of nonsensical when you think that everyone who is not a First Nations person is a migrant. They're already recognised because they have an Australian constitution that speaks to them. So, look, it ducks the issue. The issue is recognition, uh, structural change and a voice for First Nations people as a distinct polity in Australia. And that's the fundamental question to grapple with. So it ducks the issue, it muddies the waters, and it also is an attempt to divide, presumably, to, in the words of the multicultural groups, pit ethnic mm. communities against the First Nations people. The Liberal Party is going to be clearly important. No matter how much the Prime Minister says this is for the people to decide, the position of our major political parties will be important. The Liberals yet to declare their position, calling for more detail on the voice proposal. The opposition leader, Peter Dutton, will meet with the voice referendum working group today. We're recording this on Thursday. Do you think I think he's genuine in trying to divine which way to lead the Liberal Party. Do you think this working group is likely to persuade him to back the Yes campaign? As a political leader, he has to sit down and listen um, to that working sure. group. Um, to do anything else would be disingenuous. Um, he's already facing the reality that his coalition partner, the Nationals, are out in front of this and they've said no to it. And I'm just wondering too, Fran, I mean, isn't the Liberal Party position still the Liberal Party position that they took under Turnbull and Morrison, which was to reject the idea, um, that we haven't seen any change to that. Now, while they haven't come out and said that they oppose this referendum, the position of the Turnbull government, the Morrison government, was not to accept the idea of a voice on liberal ideological grounds that, that it gives to one group of Australians uh, political representation and rights that are not enjoyed by other Australians. It's sort of classically liberal framing of this of this dilemma. So that's the reality. But then there's a political reality, of course, that Peter Dutton has to be able to negotiate here, and that is it fits into how he repositions his Liberal Party after Turnbull, after Morrison, and how he seeks to find a pathway back to government and whether the question of the voice becomes something that he's able to to build his brand around, whether he's prepared to let that go. So he has to make a political calculation. And I suspect right now, yes, he's listening to First Nations voices, but I suspect as well he's looking to see how this plays out and where the public moves to before we get any indication of whether there'll be a formal opposition to it. How about a conscience vote, though? Because it looked likely that the Liberals would move in that direction, allowing all MPs, including those who are more likely advocate for yes, to, to do it themselves as well. It seems to me they're perhaps maybe not going to land there. What's your take, Stan? But uh, I, I don't understand what a, a conscious vote, for, a conscience vote for what? I mean, the Australian people will vote uh, on the proposition, as it's put, should there be a First Nations voice in the Constitution, yes or no. That vote will be taken. And then there'll be legislation to frame the composition of that vote. Well, the legislation will be passed on the voices in the parliament that the Labor Party already has. So, And if Liberal Party members want to cross the floor, if you like, and vote for that, 
then that's their already their prerogative as Liberal Party members. They're able to do that in a way that Labor Party MPs are not. So they already have the capacity to exercise their conscience. But the first thing we have to do is to hear from the Australian people in a referendum as to whether they support the proposition of a voice before we get well, to legislation. Stan, I know that senior people within the Labor government, though, are worried about the direction of this, are worried about the impact of this issue and a, and a hard-fought campaign and a loss uh, on the government this year. It seems as though the Prime Minister is getting nervous about a lack of bipartisanship for the referendum. Anthony Albanese mm. has now just written to Peter Dutton asking him to lay out the changes he wants to the proposal in what seems a fairly urgent bid to salvage support for The Voice. Does this reveal how the Albanese government is nervous? Nervous about mm. getting referendum through without opposition support. And do you think it'll force the Liberals to put their stance clearly one way or the other very soon? Well, Peter Dutton's in a position where he can sit back and, and wait, I suppose, and see which way uh, the wind blows with this because Anthony Albanese has already attached himself to it. He's attached his prime ministership to it. And he has political ownership of it. We know that referendums that do not have bipartisanship don't succeed in Australia. So there's already that political hurdle. We don't have opposition yet um, from Peter Dutton's side. And he's come out and said, we're going to oppose this and reject it. Albeit, as I said, the Nationals have already done that. But if there is not bipartisanship, we know that that's, that's a lot of lead to carry in your saddlebags mm. to try to get a referendum up. The other thing for Anthony Albanese to consider, of course, as well, and he's been quite interesting in the way that he's navigated this. He's, on the one hand, talked up the importance of a voice, but on the other hand, reassured people that it is just a voice, it's not a veto, it doesn't give Aboriginal people um, primacy over over the sovereignty of the parliament. So he's been very careful to try to assuage any of those concerns. But here's something I suppose that's in the back of his mind as well, is how this feeds into the political landscape. What if the economy can, continues to take a downturn? What if in the worst possible scenario you slid into recession? What if we see a spike in unemployment? When the interest rates continue to go up and that hits household uh, households, when you see inflation continuing, if this plays into the political cycle, that becomes something else that mm. they can attack him on. Now, remember, of course, David Cameron in the UK, when the Brexit vote became a vote on David Cameron, and when the Brexit referendum did not go the way that he'd anticipated, then he ended up losing his leadership. And I suppose that that's the political landscape to have to navigate as well. What an interesting point. Look, Stan, you mentioned at the top of our conversation that the, they're going to have to fun, fight on several fronts. So there's divisions in the left. So let's go to that. The Greens are divided mm. on this too. Their First Nations spokesperson, Lydia Thorpe, wants a treaty first, and even more than just wanting a treaty first, she's very critical of the voice full stop, <laughs> as mm. far as I understand it. She doesn't um, say many positive things about the concept of a voice, that it would be a powerless advisory body who wants to just be advisors. She told a rally. She came on Q&A with you, and this is what mm. she had to say. Nothing's going to change by an advisory body. We've told the government that we don't want to cede sovereignty. We've told the government to implement the Royal Commission into Aboriginal deaths in custody, the Bringing Them Home report, which are 30 and 20 year old reports. She also stated how she would like, as we've mentioned, sovereignty to be addressed yeah. in The Voice. Here she is. I'd really uh, like to see that as part of the legislation or even put in the, our constitution that uh, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, first people of this country, are the sovereign people of the land. That would be amazing if Labor could do that. 
we're recording this Thursday. There's a two-day yeah. Greens sort of talk fest where they're trying to nut some of these things out. Lydia Thorpe isn't there. She's not there because she's on sorry business. But either way, she's kind of going it alone on this. How is this mm. going to be resolved, Stan, and how meaningful is it? Yeah, look, it, it, her position has always been the protection of First Nations sovereignty and enshrining that sovereignty. Uh, and as she said, if the voice legislation was to enshrine that sovereignty, was to find a form of words that enshrine First Nations sovereignty, then that would be far more acceptable um, to her. Uh, now, we know, of course, we're not going to get that legislation until after the, the referendum itself, when they come to the actual composition of the voice. But this, this question of sovereignty has been critical, and she'd been very consistent uh, in that. It was interesting as well when I put to her, though, on, on the program, when I said, on the day of the vote, when you were standing there and you have your pencil in your hand mm. and you have to tick a yes or a no, which way are you going to go? And she wouldn't commit to that. And then she said, well, I want to see exactly what the commitments are from the government first. So there is that little bit of wiggle room as to what she will actually do on the day of the vote. But her position has been very strong. If it does not represent First Nations sovereignty, then it's not something she's actively going to support. Where that leaves her, if the Greens come out, of course, and say that they are going to, as a party, support the voice to Parliament or the voice in the Constitution, then how do they navigate that, given her portfolio and her responsibilities within the party? But that's something the Greens will have to work out. And I think mm. to this stage, uh, Adam Bant has said that that is something for Lydia as well to come to her own her own decision on. So, but you know, look, it, 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 we saw in the in the uh, the Invasion Day, Australia Day, Survival Day rallies where people were coming out in quite big number, um, marching in the streets saying, vote no, the voice is not enough, who wants to have an advisory body? I, I don't know if that constitutes a majority within First Nations population, but it's significant. And for those proponents of the voice, it is going to be something to have to counter. And we know as more detail goes comes out or as more time goes on, there's often momentum around those those opposing voices. And we saw we've seen that in other referendums, particularly with the Republican referendum. Well, as you, as which, you start, which, which split on the inside, didn't it? Split on the Republican side. Well that's right. And as you started off by saying basically division disunity is death for a referendum in this country. We've, history tells us that. Mm. So what does the government and those back in the campaign, what do they need to do to counter this? Because we haven't even seen the formal yes campaign kicked off yet, rolled out yet, have we? Yeah, this is a really intriguing referendum because it does seek to reset the, the political orthodoxy in some way. The Uluru Statement was never presented as a statement to politicians, but a, an offer to the Australian people to walk with First Nations people to a better future. The Yes campaign, to the extent that you know it exists, those proponents of the Yes cause have been very assiduous in saying this should be carried by the Australian people and trying to take retail politics out of it and speak directly to the Australian people. A pathway to success for this referendum may be in fact trying to bypass politics, trying to speak to a with a moral power, a moral weight, speak to the principle of the thing to the Australian people. Is this chance to try to reset relations with First Nations people to address the great sin of Australia? And, and of course, once you get the voice, if indeed they were successful, does that then lead to the more substantial reforms of treaty and truth-telling? So this is an iterative process. It doesn't just end with a voice. but. So far, the, the strategy from Yes proponents has been to try to speak over politics 
to the Australian people. And there's been fairly consistent polling to show that the Australian people mm. support the principle of the voice. But when that is tested with detail and as the political rhetoric heats up, is that going to hold? That's the question. Now, the other sort of adjacent issue that's been going on, which is different, of course, but there are definitely links in terms of where this discussion goes, is what we've seen uh, transpire in Alice Springs. Big mm. spikes in crime in the community following the end of the intervention era alcohol bans last year that gr gripped national attention. Linda Burney was speaking on RM Breakfast in the last week or so, and she said that if there had been a voice, that this sort of thing would have been avoided because the voice would have been speaking powerfully. Do you think that's a persuasive argument, Stan? You know, it's really where the rubber hits the road with this because even people who have been supportive have been saying that it must lead to genuine change on the ground in people's lives. And we had a question from a First Nations woman from Alice Springs on Q&A this week who said directly to Mullandiri McCarthy on the panel from Labor, what happens when the voice of Aboriginal people does not sit the political agenda? I mean, we can have a voice. But what happens if that voice is overruled, if you don't hear the voice? Um, will the voice be adequately able in its representation to speak directly to First Nations people and represent those concerns in a way that the parliament takes heed of? I mean, all of those things are still to be worked out. But what's happened in Alice Springs has become a microcosm, hasn't it, of the bigger issues here. The question of the voice coalesces around the societal breakdown that you see in Alice Springs and, and a visual representation through the images and the crime and the anger that we're seeing on the streets there, a visual representation of just what this means. What you are seeing playing out there is what 200 plus years of colonisation means for First Nations people. So all of this is, is feeding into the backdrop of the wider discussion around what the politics of the voice will be. But all those issues you talked about too have coalesced for the short term in, for the immediate rather, in Alice Springs around alcohol, around grog. Mm. Um, the ABC understands the report from the regional controller in the Northern Territory, Drell Anderson, has recommended after a one-week one inquiry that the Northern Territory government urgently legislate amendments to its Liquor Act to impose alcohol restrictions and um, including in town camps. It recommends the liquor laws would stay in place until alcohol management plans are developed by the communities themselves that would allow them to opt out, but only with a developed plan. Now, mm -hmm. there's questions about whether a week is long enough to file this report, but the stats are pretty clear already. In the few days that the um, temporary bans have been in place, I spoke to a very senior Northern Territory police officer over the weekend who said those tighter alcohol restrictions would see an immediate and massive drop in domestic mm -hmm. violence. Overnight was his word, and that's what the most immediate stats have shown us, which is you know reason enough to extend mm -hmm. the bans, isn't it? Yeah, and you hear from First Nations people on the ground as well um, saying that something needs to be done and if this is a short-term mechanism to just be able to bring some peace and some breathing room to look at longer-term solutions. But what are we doing longer-term? I mean, we've mm. had alcohol mm. bans before and there's always the risk in any of this of a punitive approach or prohibitive approach that is not backed up by the significant reform, investment and time and imagination to actually look at what the longer term issues and solutions are here. We can't just simply roll out the police and more punishment and more prohibition 
to resolve these issues. And the difference this provide... time, though, is, Dan, is the police are even saying that. Yes. I mean, the police have come out this week saying you can't police your way out of this. You, of course you can't. And First Nations people have been the most over-policed people yeah. um, in Australia for 200 years. And we see the result of that because we, we're 3% of the population, nearly 40% of the prison population. Clearly, that is not the answer. We are the people who know what's good for us. When we talk about our communities, we're not talking about abstract ideas of community. We're talking about family, our extended families. We know what's good for us. And that, I think, comes down to the, again, the crux of the matter with the voice. Whether it be voice, whether it be treaty, whatever it is, what manifestation of that political representation is, we as First Nations people need to have greater control over our destiny. We know who we are. Stan, I can't think of a better person we could have had on for our debut 2023 episode. Thank you so much for stepping oh, by into the party room. It's been my pleasure. Thank Thanks, you. Thanks, Dan. We'll move to questions without notice. We'll give the call to the Leader of the Opposition. Thank you very much, uh, Mr Speaker. My question is to the Prime Minister. And it's time for our question time. We've beaten the Federal Parliament's question time by a week, aren't we good? Or a couple of days. Um, and this question comes from, I think it's Gardevoir, who writes, what does the government need to do to counter misinformation about The Voice? And is the is it the responsibility of journalists to be better informed while discussing the issue? Well, in answer to that last one, yes, it is the responsibility of journalists to be as well-informed as we can be. But in this case, as the Minister of Indigenous Affairs, Linda Burney, and the Prime Minister keep telling us, uh, as do other Aboriginal leaders, it's the responsibility of all of us to get informed because this is a referendum in which we get to make the decisions. So we all need to find out what we can. Now, what does the government need to do to counter misinformation? It needs to help us all get that information. I don't think it is good enough to say there's an 800-page report out there, you know, there's plenty of reports on the table, go read it because people have busy lives. I think it need, it's time now and I, I think there is a some kind of launch plan for February 20th, I think, isn't it, PK, um, for, you know, clear, cohesive information, coherent information to be out there about what the voice is, what it's going to look like in broad terms and the reason why that kind of detail won't be included in the Constitution because the Constitution is the foundation document. It's not a place to spell out all the sort of nuts and bolts of how something's going to work. You know, in our Constitution, it doesn't tell us what the Prime Minister's job is. It doesn't tell us that. It just tells us there will be a Prime Minister and a Cabinet, executive government. So, you know, it's not the place for that detail and the referendum is to vote for a change to the Constitution, but that doesn't mean people aren't going to need some more basic information to some basic questions so that they can make this decision in confidence. And I think, you know, yes, the information exists, everyone. It does need to be, I think, um, delivered to people in an easy-to-access information. I don't think that's quite the government's quite nailed that yet. No, but that is coming, um, we're told. But in terms of that part of the question about uh, is it the you know responsibility of journalists to be better informed while discussing the issue? Well, of course, I mean, you expect journalists to be informed of anything they're reporting on. If they're not, they're not doing their job and it's not ethical. Two things I want to point to. One is Guardian Australia's uh, um, editor is Lenore Taylor. She wrote an excellent piece about a week ago, easy to find if you just search for it, about that very question. Um, and another point too, on this this answer that, that there's a report um, 
you know, on the table, people should read it. I agree that ordinary Australians can't be expected, you know, to do that. Absolutely agree. And also, there's a few reports, but they haven't landed on the final model anyway. So you could read it, but it's not necessarily the final formation. But when that's mentioned, and I do think this is an important distinction, it's mentioned often in relation to the political class, i.e., Peter Dutton should have read the reform because he was in the shadow, he was in the cabinet and now he's obviously in the shadow cabinet, but was that's in the, the cabinet, cabinet that, that commissioned it. it. That's right. So that's what it's pointing to. I don't think anyone really, and if they do, they're, it's silly, uh, ordinary people who are just, you know, getting on with their lives and, you know, aren't going to read an entire government report. They can if they want, but, you know, most people don't and, and, and that's just life. But that's what I think that's pointing to, that those people do have access to it and, in fact, were given it. And I do think that journalists need to be informed. So, for instance, one thing, you know, you hear journalists do is go, what's the detail? What's the detail? Mm. That's just a meaningless word that's repeating what they've heard in a political discussion. Some specific things can be asked, you know, about the, you know, the, the remit of the power, what kind of things it will advise on. Will it be anything or specific? Lots of really good questions about detail, but you don't just bandy the word detail around without agree. a specific idea of what you're actually trying to find out. Um, so I, I agree. I mean, I think there is important. Yeah, I think there is a clutch of questions that could could and should be asked, and that would help people understand and probably reassure people. Um, that this is not, you know, a third chamber of parliament or anything like that. So I do think there's those sorts of questions that need to be asked and answered quickly because, you know, as we've been discussing already in the podcast, the no campaign is often running and there's um, a, a lot of uh, a, a lot of different tracks that this is going down already. And I think the Yes campaign does need to get out there quickly with that information campaign, which it's due to do. If it intends to win. I mean, you know, you've got to be able to, if you want to win a campaign, you have to actually go out and um, make your point and try and get people on side, don't you? So that's that's their job to do if they if they want it to be successful. And we know that, that, that a lot, there's a lot at stake here for people. Yeah. So clearly they do. Keep sending your questions in because we love getting them. You can tweet using the hashtag The Party Room or email your questions to thepartyroom at abc.net.au. And you, remember, you can follow us, The Party Room, on the ABC Listen app so you never miss an episode. Now, before we go, I wanted to share with you uh, RN has a new podcast hosted by Hamish McDonald. It's called Take Me to Your Leader. It gives you a kind of unique and intimate insight into leaders, not not our leaders, international leaders, uh, leaders across the world. Xi Jinping, uh, we're talking about Saudi leader, Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman, those kinds of leaders, what makes them tick. It's on the ABC Listen app where the party room is as well and where RN Breakfast is as well. Easy to find. It's always exciting to have a new podcast to listen to. Yeah, there's some really, um, really quirky and intimate little details about some of these people. It's really terrific. That's it from us. See you, PK. See you, Fran. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.